please open with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, as we continue this series going through the book of Revelation. While you're turning there, I have a confession to make. Your pastor has read the Left Behind series. Now, some of you may not know what the Left Behind series was. Uh, some of you may have read the Left Behind series as well. Uh, but this was a series of books that came out in the late 1990s and into the 2000s and was a fictional story that uh, was, was incredibly popular. New York Times bestsellers. They were turned into a number of movies. But a story that sought to show what would happen when the book of Revelation begins to come true after the church is removed from the earth through the rapture and the last days of human history begin? Well, why do I bring this up? Because this chapter, chapter 11 in Revelation, is portrayed through two men named Eli and Moisha, who begin to prophesy God's judgment at the Wailing Wall, there of the temple site there in the city of Jerusalem. And when people come and try to kill these two witnesses, we read how fire comes out of their mouths and consumes those who try to attack them. So now we have fire-breathing prophets. And three and a half years after this coming uh, ruling emperor over the world named Nikolai Carpathia enters into a seven-year peace agreement with Israel. This Antichrist then kills these two prophets who lay there in the street for three and a half days until they are resurrected and ascend up to heaven. Well, here's my question. Should we read Revelation this way? Is this how we are to understand what takes place in chapter 11? As a literal description of what will happen over the final seven years of human history. Well, by now, I hope that the answer is clear. Because the answer is no. Revelation is a book of symbolism, which gives us a heavenly, behind-the-scenes view of what is going on through this age. So if you read Revelation 11 literalistically, then you're going to miss the meaning of these symbols. And it's possible that you will miss God's encouragement to us through these symbols. So I ask that you please keep this in mind as we look at this chapter, while remembering that we can come to understand these symbols as we recognize that the meaning of them comes through the Old Testament in its parallels and allusions and echoes. So we're going to be doing a study here through the Old Testament of what the symbolism in Revelation chapter 11 means, and I hope through them receive encouragement to our souls. It's with this then in mind, we'll read together Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14 where the Apostle John records for us. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. 
but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over, weight, over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, before we continue, let us once more approach the throne of grace in prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you guide us through this study of your word. And that not only will you guide us, but that through your Holy Spirit, you will speak to us as your word is preached. Father, we ask that you will illumine our minds. And that in, in, in helping us to understand these truths, that you will then revive our hearts so that we will rejoice in Christ and seek to live more and more like our Savior so that we will glorify you and we will confidently carry out the purpose in which you have given us as we live in this fallen and sinful world. So Father, may you be at work among us this morning, saving sinners with the grace of Christ and encouraging saints with the same grace that enriches and empowers our souls. Father, we pray for all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So through all of the symbolism, what is God reminding us of this morning? What does he reveal to us today? It's that Christ's church will complete our mission. 
Christchurch will complete our mission. Now, that may not be what strikes you as we've simply read Revelation 11, but let me show you this truth through the three stages of what unfolds in this chapter. In the first stage, verses 1 to 6, we read of our current mission. Our current mission. But then that brings us in verses 7 to 10 to our coming persecution. Our coming persecution. And then finally, in verses 11 to 14, we end with the final stage of our constant hope. So our current mission, our coming persecution, and our constant hope. Let's begin then by looking more closely at verses 1 to 6, where we read of our current mission. And of course, the Apostle John has been recording these symbolic visions of prophecy that are revealed by God to him so that Christ's churches will be encouraged as we struggle and suffer in this present evil age. Which is why between the sixth and the seventh trumpets of judgment that come against a third of God's creation, he then pauses to reassure Christ church of his faithfulness when this judgment comes. And that's this, this pause is, is what we are in here in chapter 11. But Christ first in chapter 10 sends down a mighty angel from heaven with a, a scroll that's open and revealing God's plan of salvation. Which is why he then tells John to eat this scroll. So that the prophecy of the coming of our salvation through God's judgment of the wicked will be internalized. And then John can prophesy these truths. So in God calling and commissioning John as a prophet, we've seen how John is actually following the pattern of the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Ezekiel, when he is also given a scroll to eat with God's judgment written down on it. That's what we saw last time in the book of Ezekiel. So now that John has eaten this scroll and has been given this, this service to God as Christ's prophet, in chapter 11, John is now given something else. And what is he given there in verse 1? But a rod like a measuring rod or a reed like a measuring rod. This would have been something similar to a, a, a wooden yardstick, except it would have been made from a, a reed that would have been longer. It would have been hollow and, and been almost ten and a half feet long. But it's used to measure the, the length or the width of something. And again, this is actually what happens to the prophet Ezekiel. If you look at the end of the book of Ezekiel, God takes Ezekiel in a vision to see a restored temple as it is measured with a measuring rod as a promise to God's people. And the prophet Zechariah also received a vision of a man with a measuring rod who measured the width and length of the capital city, Jerusalem, so that his people would know of God's protection of the holy city in Zechariah 2, verses 1 to 5. So here... John is told by this angel to measure the temple of God. But it would be a mistake to think of him measuring a literal building. Either a future rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem in the future, or the, 
past temple as it stood in the first century in Jerusalem. Remember, John is receiving these visions through symbols where these images then reflect biblical truths and represent biblical truths. And their meaning then is found as we connect them to the previous revelation that's given in Scripture. So think back to the meaning of the temple, what the temple was to the people of God. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the temple was where God was present with his people. And it's why when Jesus came, he said about himself, what? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So what then is the temple of God? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true temple of God because in Jesus Christ, God is present with his people. It's Christ's body that's the temple of God, which then came under the very judgment of God when he hung on the cross for our sins. So as the temple of the Old Testament came under God's judgment, so did the temple of Jesus' body come under God's judgment as he poured out his blood shed for sinners on the cross. See, this sin, this rebellion in our hearts must be judged and is judged and will be judged. Yet our hope is found in Christ who in love takes our judgment upon himself. Which is why in him we no longer face the judgment of God. We no longer come under the wrath of God, but we are saved from the wrath of God. His death and through his death, we no longer face a death of condemnation, but receive eternal life. You see, Jesus didn't only die on the cross for our sins, but he rose from the dead three days later, overcoming the curse of death that we deserve for our sins. And so he then raises with this resurrection life that we will then receive in our eternal life in him. So if this, if you here this morning are an unbeliever and you have not yet received Christ as your Savior, listen. The judgment of God is coming. And you will come under the wrath of God for your sin. But in God's love, Christ came. And through Christ's love, you will have life by believing in Christ and turning away from your sins and repentance and turning to Christ and trusting in Him in faith. So believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. In whom then you will find the forgiveness of sins. In whom you'll be reconciled with God. And in whom you will live in the very presence of God himself. 
because Jesus is the temple. He is the temple of God. You know what's amazing? That when we believe in Jesus who is the temple, we too become the temple of God. Because we are united to him by faith and become the true spiritual temple of God. That's what we go on to see through the New Testament. For example, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul at the end of Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul writes, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So turning back to Revelation, what is this temple? This temple is Christ's church. It symbolizes Christ's church. Why then is John to measure Christ's church in this vision? Because God's promise is to be with his people. He promises to be with his people. And listen, none of us will be lost. Every single one, wherever he or she may be in the world, is included and counted as those who belong to God and who live in his presence. Which is why as he measures them, he will not lose them. We will be included together with the church as God spiritually both preserves and protects us as his temple. That's why John measures the temple. But while John is to measure the temple together with its altar and those who worship, he's then told not to measure. And what is he not to measure? the temple's outside court, since it has been given to the Gentiles or to the nations, which here symbolize if, if the church is the Israel of God, the church is the, the, the temple of God, then what are the outer courts? The Gentiles, who then represent the wicked of this world who remain opposed to God and his people. As they continue in their sin. See, it's these who are the ones that will rule over this sinful, this sin cursed and corrupt world through this age. That's why we don't look for a theocracy in this world. That's why we don't seek to, to build the kingdom of Christ in this world as if we'll somehow accomplish the kingdom before Christ's return. But the outer court is given over to the Gentile nations. See, the earthly temple that stood back throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament was divided between the inner courts and an outer court. And the Gentiles were only able to enter the outer court since they were unclean. They could not come into the presence of God. But here we see that this separation can also be seen in God's heavenly temple as we live in this world. 
Because there is a difference and a distinction between those who have been separated from the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who remain in the world and as the world then oppose God and his church. But how long will this opposition from unbelieving Gentiles against those of us who dwell in this heavenly city continue? Revelation 11 says, for 42 months. And if you think about it, how many months of the year are there? 12, so 12, uh, 42 divided by 12. How, how many years is this? Three and a half years, right? This is three and a half years. But to order, understand this reference, we must again turn to the Old Testament, and specifically here, Daniel chapter 9, where God reveals a prophecy to Daniel of 70 weeks. And frankly, this prophecy is notoriously a difficult passage to interpret. It's uh, why, I, as I read uh, Dale Ralph Davis in, in a, a good brief commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, li listen to what he has to say about this prophecy. He writes, in a Peanuts cartoon, Linus is interpreting a nursery rhyme, and he tells Charlie Brown, the way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates a rise in farm prices. Linus asks if Charlie agrees. Charlie confesses, I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. Uh, Davis goes on to write, we may be ready to disqualify ourselves in a similar way as we face Daniel's 70 weeks revelation. I well recall the first time I had to lecture on this passage in a liberal arts college. I worked through the Hebrew text and spent hours reading secondary sources and almost came to a Charlie Brown position. But at least I had a title for my lecture, 70 weeks and 20 problems. Now, obviously, I'm not going to be able to handle all of the problems today and I won't be defending my interpretation against other alternative views, but I would encourage all of you here to be good Bereans and to study what I am saying through the truth of God's word so that you can be fully convinced in your own mind. But what we find here in Revelation 11 is, is John drawing on this final week of Daniel's 70 weeks, which we read of in Daniel 9, verses 26 to 27. So listen as, as I read here from Daniel in this prophecy of 70 weeks, of this final week. Uh, Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, it's very common for people to say that each of these weeks represents seven years, which then would add up to 490 years. With 69 weeks of years between the return of God's people from exile to the promised land as they rebuild the city and the temple until the coming of Christ, which 
than would happen 483 years later. They then will say that there is a break between the 69th and the 70th week through the death and resurrection of Christ, which is why the final seventh week period of seven years is still in our future as the great tribulation to come at the end of this age. But I don't believe that's how we should interpret this final week as seven literal years. Rather, we should interpret it symbolically as the entire church age between the first and second comings of Christ. You see, in Daniel 9, this week is split in half between a prince that comes and brings an end to sacrifice and offering, which means there's a split in this age between what is seen as a three and a half year of worship and a three and a half year time of persecution. But if I'm right, and this seven years covers the entire church age, then the question becomes, which three and a half year period is John writing about in these verses? Because many see it as the second half of the final seven years, the final three and a half years, and, and, and frankly, they, they make a strong case. But it seems more likely to me that this describes the first three and a half year period from the death and resurrection of Christ until the beast arises as we see in as we'll see in verses 7 to 10 so there's a contrast here with what comes once the beast ascends and what we currently live in as God's protected people because there is currently a protective restraint during the first symbolic three and a half years through church history so that we will carry out our mission. You see, during this time, what happens? During this time, Christ gives power to his two witnesses, right? And these two witnesses will prophesy for how long? 1,260 days which with 30 days a month adds up to three and a half years. And while these two prophets have been identified in many ways through the centuries, I don't see these as two literal prophets to come in the future. Instead, they represent the church with our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ through this age. Again, symbolism, the symbolism that's present here. Why then are there two prophets? Well, do you remember through Scripture how the truth of something is established? Two or three witnesses. Well, here we have two witnesses, don't we? So we read in Deuteronomy 19.15, for example, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any inequity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So here we have the mouths of two witnesses. And they symbolically represent the church in our mission as they prophesy of the judgment to come and of our salvation from God's judgment through Jesus Christ. And here they're clothed in sackcloth, which was what the prophets wore as a clothing of mourning over sin and judgment. But then these two witnesses are described through other symbolic images, right? 
We read of them here as the two olive trees, which again in the Old Testament comes from Zechariah chapter 4. The two prophets there who we read in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So there are two prophets in Zechariah 4 described as two olive trees and then also the two lampstands we find in Zechariah 4 as well. But do you remember how Jesus announces the meanings of these lampstands in Revelation chapter 1, the opening vision? He says these lampstands represent churches. So look, all of this biblical imagery is brought together here in John's vision to reveal Christ's church on mission to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you starting to see how the symbolism comes together? Well, what happens during this time? In our mission, we face opposition from the nations. The people from the world want to harm Christ's church. Which is why God's power is given to Christ's church so that we can withstand their attacks. And again, this power is symbolized through the imagery of two Old Testament prophets. Elijah and Moses, which likely represent the law and the prophets as a testimony of Christ. But it was the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven, right? Second Kings chapter one, to confront the king of Israel and the false prophets of Baal, of Baal with God's supremacy and his judgment for idolatry. And it was also the same Elijah that prayed that it would not rain in the land. And so it didn't rain. But do you know how long it didn't rain? Three and a half years. But not only was Elijah a prophet, so was Moses. And so we read of Moses as a prophet who calls down God's judgment against Egypt in the plagues. As he turned waters to blood and struck the earth with plagues. So it's this prophetic ministry that continues through the church's mission. But listen, we shouldn't read into this that it's our church's ministry now to call down fire from heaven or that we should be praying for drought and famine in judgment against our land or that we should be seeking to turn water into blood or, or striking the earth with whatever plague we may want. Now look, these show us the power that comes through the gospel to save and condemn. After all, where is the fire coming from? From the mouths of the two witnesses. The mouths that speak their prophetic message. It's through the gospel that this fire comes. So look, after all the symbolism... What do we find? Through all the symbolism, what do we see? That Christians may be persecuted and even killed while we carry out our current message of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. But listen, Christ's church will be preserved and protected during this time until our mission is complete. We will be successful. What reassuring words, then, we are given as we seek to carry out Christ's mission? 
What confidence we can have as we carry out Christ's mission. Because in the midst of a world that is opposed to us in sin, we are secure in Christ and have a powerful gospel message to proclaim. May we then warn our neighbors and the nations of God's judgment while freely offering Christ's salvation to them because this is our current mission. May we be busy carrying out the mission that Christ has given his church. But then we move from the first scene here in chapter 11 to the second scene where we then enter in verses 7 to 10 to see our coming persecution. Our coming persecution, because one day the church will finish prophesying the testimony of the gospel. Which is why Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, listen, as a witness to the nations. And then the end will come. So when the church has finished its mission, what does John see? But a beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. And we're going to be seeing a lot more of this beast in the coming chapters. But right now, observe where this beast comes from. He comes from the bottomless pit. And this isn't the first time we've heard of the bottomless pit. It was back in chapter 9 when the demonic horde of locust scorpions came out of the bottomless pit in the plague that came from the fifth trumpet judgment. But the bottomless pit is the pit of hell where Satan and his army of demons reside. Which means that this beast that arises is a satanic oppressor that comes to make war against Christ's church. And Daniel also wrote about this coming, the coming of this beast in his kingdom, in his vision in Daniel chapter 7. And so in Daniel 7, we read in verse 25 of this beast, that he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, what does that sound like? Another three and a half year period, right? So under God's providence, a time will come when this beast will begin a much more severe time of persecution against Christ's church. Since the restraints that are keeping him in the pit of hell will one day be removed. And I believe that this is what the Apostle Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There Paul writes of God restraining the beast during the church's mission and once it's complete, then this restraint will be taken out of the way and a greater worldwide persecution will come. What then is the result? Well, again, Revelation 11, the beast will overcome and kill many Christians during this final time before Christ returns. And the church will lie in humiliation before the world, like bodies that do not receive the dignity of being buried after death. 
See, the church doesn't look forward to a time where, where Christianity will overcome the world before Jesus returns. There won't be this great success of transformation of society in the coming days. But the coming days are ones of more severe persecution until Jesus returns. And then that's when our triumph comes. Then that's when Christ's kingdom fully comes. Until then, what do we see? Humiliation. And where does this humiliation take place? Where sinful resistance against Christ is ultimately found. The city of Jerusalem where our Lord was crucified. And while this was the capital city of God's people in the promised land, it is spiritually no different than Sodom and Egypt. Why? Because they all came under the judgment of God for their sinful rebellion. Which is why here it is symbolically portrayed as the capital city of the coming Antichrist beast. And when this happens... The peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations of this world will see the humiliation of the church and they'll rejoice. They'll rejoice in their unrepentant sinfulness. And how long will they see these unburied bodies and rejoice? We read here in this verse that it's for three and a half days which I believe is referring to the second three-and-a-half-year period of Daniel's 70th week. Remember, Daniel's 70th week is split in half once God removes his restraint in the revelation of the beast. So once again, we're not talking about specific periods of time, but about the completion of God's plan through this present evil age. Which is why here I believe there is a contrast between the length of the church's gospel witness and the length of the world's sinful celebration. So if I'm right, the second three and a half years are here seen as three and a half days in order to show how brief this severe persecution against Christ's church will be until his return. When the Lord will consume the beast with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. His reign will be short. But however long this period may be, it is a time where the wicked of this world will celebrate the church's supposed failure and the beast's assumed success. And you know, as I, I read about their celebrations, do you know what it reminds me of? An anti-Christmas party, right? They're making merry singing perverse songs of the beast. They're exchanging presents with one another. But instead of celebrating the coming of Christ, they're celebrating the death of his church. And they're celebrating because the church's gospel witness has tormented them. Now, I don't think this refers to the physical torment that comes through the gospel, but to the spiritual and the psychological torment that comes as sinners are confronted with the judgment they deserve in their wickedness. 
So they're confronted through the gospel of their sin and of God's command of repentance, which torments their soul because of their love for sin and their worldly pursuits. But I want us to remember this, brothers and sisters, that while this coming persecution of the beast hasn't yet begun, we should not forget that as the, the same author here of Revelation, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 3, that the Antichrist is coming and the spirit of Antichrist is now already in the world. So even we are even now facing this oppression and persecution, which will temporarily intensify at God's appointed time. So the question for us this morning is, are we ready? Are we ready? And how can we be prepared for this persecution? Well, this brings us to the final scene here in chapter 11 of our constant hope. Our constant hope, which is given in verses 11 to 14, you see this time too, this coming time of persecution will come to an end because God is sovereign over what happens in his creation and will resurrect Christ's church into our eternal future glory in his presence. It's where our hope is found. After all, what does Jesus promise his church through the apostle Peter in Matthew 16, 18? He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You know what John shows us? That the bottomless pit will not prevail against it either. So like Ezekiel, as he sees a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, where spiritually dead Israel would one day return from its exile to receive resurrection life through the Holy Spirit, so too here Christ's church We'll finish our time in exile in this world to resurrection life as well. And we too receive the breath of life that brings these two witnesses back to life as they stand again amidst those who have persecuted and killed them. And those who see now fear God and His judgment against them. Which is why from heaven then the church is called up in a cloud. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we rise with resurrected bodies to meet Christ in the air as He returns to rule over the earth and to judge those who dwell on it. So you see, Christ's return and His church joining with Him in the clouds we see here will be a public event, not a secret rapture but an event everyone will see because he, our enemies will see him and they will see us with him. But what else happens when Christ returns for his resurrected church? You want to see here in Revelation 11 that a great earthquake will then destroy a tenth of the wicked city and 7,000 people are killed. But again, the city and the people here symbolically represent the end of this world war against God and his people because Christ will turn triumphant and his church will share in his victory. And those remaining will fear God and give him glory. 
Now, some suggest that this is a final revival of repentance among the wicked. And it may be. But I don't see this as a godly fear of repentance, of giving God glory in true worship through faith in Christ at the end of this age. But these words seem to be a fearful recognition of God's supremacy and His sovereignty over His creation as they are coming to face His judgment against them. In any case, these verses end in verse 14 when we read that John writes, the second woe is past. You remember the first woe came, this first warning of woe, after the fifth trumpet judgment. And the second warning of woe comes after the sixth trumpet judgment and God's interruption here to reassure Christ church of our promised future through his judgments. Well, what's he saying? There is still one more woe coming once the seventh and final trumpet is sounded. And it is here that our constant hope of resurrection life will be joyfully experienced. What a symbolic picture then of encouragement the Church of Christ receives here from this chapter of Scripture, which frankly is far greater than the literalistic story that's told through the Left Behind series. See, Christ's church will complete our mission. Christ's church will complete our mission. Yes, we will face many temptations and trials and troubles and tribulations in this world. But through our struggles and our suffering, Christ has given us a mission to complete. So let us confidently carry out this mission under God's protection and provision until Christ returns and we then finally enter into our resurrection glory with Him. May we, with confidence, carry out this mission to completion because God is at work through us and in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring many sons to glory. May we be about then his business as Christ's church and complete this mission. Whatever may happen to us, knowing of our eternal future in God's presence forever. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may we receive the encouragement that you've revealed to us through the symbols of this chapter. And even as we may wrestle over the, the, the images and the details of of what John has recorded for us. May we not miss this truth, that Christ's church will complete our mission. And may we then continue on this mission, full of faith in Christ, who promises us 
He will be with us through the very end of the age. Oh, Father, may Cornerstone Fellowship Church be known as a body who is confident enough in Christ to carry out His mission, even through any opposition and persecution we may face. Father, we pray then for this strength through Your Spirit in the name of of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.